Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another Tej Talks episode. On today's show, we have John Howard, who has over four decades of property experience across quite a few different approaches or strategies. So today was really, you know, a kind of a conversation. It was more about me asking questions that I think I get asked a lot, but asking it to someone who's got a lot more experience than me, which is always handy. You know, we talk through property education and the ways you can educate yourself for free and protect yourself from that. The merits of buy-to-lets versus, say, HMOs versus big developments. Some interesting developments John is working on and some planning gains or uplifts that we've spoken about. But also it's kind of a general chat about the economy, about where do we think, you know, the the world is going to head after coronavirus and what becomes the new normal. So we really do cover a wide range of topics here. I mean, John does have his own sort of rules or things he, he sticks to, which he gets a bit of stick for. But these are his opinions and there is opinions. Uh, he's also written a few books, so go check them out. I haven't read them yet. Uh, hopefully I'll get a free copy in the post after this one. If you would like to invest with me or want to learn more about my Earn and Learn program, please go to tejinvest.com or email me hello at tejinvest.com. But please do leave a review for the podcast before. Thank you. all John Howard, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Thank you very much indeed. I'm delighted to be on because I think your ideas and your philosophies are similar to mine and and that's unusual from a, in a young person really so uh, I'm delighted to have met you and be on your podcast. Thank you I mean you're a young person too or at least the person in the picture behind you is. <laughs> uh, the picture, that was only taken last year but that that's what I, that's I started what I... my hundred that was two years ago no a year and a half ago that was taken when um just before I started 150 flats in in Ipswich. So that's how you age when you do a big development. Yeah. That's how you age so much with stress gonna, and worry and everything else. I was going to say, <laughs> if you did a couple of buy-to-let since then, it wouldn't make a difference, but you did something. <laughs> so before we get onto your projects, you know, you have yes. four decades of property experience, which is like, yes. which is, I think, I would say one of the most, if not the most, who's been on my podcast so there's, there's so many things I can ask you, but before yeah. we get into the, the kind of juice and the value, t- t- tell me, how did you get started in property? Okay, well, I was very lucky because um, my father was a, um, he had a green grocery business. And then when he was 60 odd years old, he decided he wanted to be an estate agent in the same town as he'd been a green grocer for 20, 30 years. So he went one day from, we shut his shop on a Saturday selling selling uh, groceries and he opened up his office on the monday selling houses now people were quite rightly said well what do you know about valuing houses but of course it's one of the few businesses Tej, that you don't need any qualifications to do and you still don't need those qualifications by the way so anyone can open up an estate agent tomorrow and start selling houses now whether that's right or wrong i'm not so sure but so that's what he did and he ran a one-man band really and it was he did it because he just wanted to always wanted to do it um, and sort of middle-class family um, and then uh, I joined him when I was well I used to help him out during the holidays so I'd hold in those days we had a, a, a measuring tape to measure houses so 
you know, now, now it was all infrared now and all this stuff. Anyway, and uh, I used to, so I used to help him on, in holidays and stuff like that. And then um, when I was 17 years old, he wasn't, he'd been very ill, been in hospital and the business was virtually closed. And I, I joined him to help him and, and, and start off. And then after, start it again, really. And then after um, four months, he had to go back in the hospital. So I was running the whole thing in, when I was 17 years, four months, I was in charge. Hadn't got a clue what I was doing, by the way. And I had a bad stammer. Well, not a bad, it was quite a bad stammer. So um, I didn't like make, I didn't like answer the phone and I hated making a phone call because I stammered. So all that sort of um, in time, well, the time I was 18 or so, I, they say you never lose your stammer, which I'm not sure is quite true, but certainly by 18, 18 and a half, I grew in confidence and, and I bought, I bought, bought my first property on my 18th birthday. Uh, I bought two, two flats and um, I was very fortunate because my mother lent me a little bit of money. I'd saved a little bit of money. And in those days you had what's called a bank manager, Tej. And a bank manager would know the family, know you, and uh, in the lo you know locally. And um, he popped down and looked at these two properties I wanted, flats I wanted to buy, and uh, said yes. He said yeah, I'll lend you a bit of money on that. So I bought them both. I sold one of them to the sitting tenant immediately for quite a good profit, which lent, lent me the other one with not much. And if you can move things quickly and deal quickly, that's got to be a great way. I mean, Vitalet's great, but it's a bit bloody boring. It takes for age ever really. Um, it's a bit like I think buy to let's be like shares. Uh, they go up, they go down a bit, but over 20, 25 years, you're not going to go wrong. And uh, yeah, so so that's that's what I that that's what I, I managed to do. And actually, there's a, a two-part film or documentary about how I started my career that's going to be on Property TV when they come back working again in in a few months' time. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. And how much did you buy the houses for? Was it like a thousand pounds? Yeah. Something? Well, funnily enough, I found a ledger that my father had from 1970 when he started the business and in it has got all the properties what was sold the prices and everything else and this is and that's all in this film i've done and in there it's got my property and it says uh buyer john howard no company bought momio now everything's done by companies all the time um, £9,250. And then underneath it, it's got sale. Seller, John Howard, buyer, who comment their names were, price £8,200. So I got left with one cottage. One was a sort of cottage at the back and one was a flat. And I got, so I sold the flat for virtually what I got the whole thing for. And I bought it, interestingly, and this is a good lesson. I bought that off another property developer, a client of my father's who over the years had bought a lot of blocks of flats in Phoenixstone, where, where, where it was. And the and I'm the same. I get you get lazy. So what happened was he he'd sold all these other flats off, got left with two sitting tents. Oh, can't be bothered those two. I'll flog them. Oh, John, do you want to buy them? I said, yeah, I'll buy them. So I just bought them. Now, when you're dealing with bigger companies and bigger people, I bought a some land like two years year and a half ago now off one of the big house builders too small for them to bother with didn't want it bunged it in an auction didn't sell bought it after the auction um without planning admittedly but it had a good uh, pre-app pre-application advice on it 
I bought it for 200 and, and this doesn't happen very often. So I'm not saying happens often, it doesn't. I bought it for 220, sold it, sold it to planning, and they did all the planning for 650,000. So that doesn't happen very often, those deals, but when they do, it's great. So always, so my message there is really to people, if you're buying off a, a bigger entity than you, maybe they could be bothered, it's too small for them to bother with. So always look at the ones where it says owned by, you know, a bigger charity or, or, or a big house builder or you know, a big company, because to them, it's like, you know, it's like that land I bought was probably pro rata to them, them, them getting two grand, literally. Yeah. You know, pro rata. So, I mean, always look at deals that are, uh, are owned by bigger, big, bigger people. Mm, that's a good tip. And then, you know, so over the past, you know, since 1970, when you started, and you started the business. 1980. 1980. What are... No, 1979, yeah. What some are some I'm not the... 90. <laughs> what are some <laughs> of the, the biggest changes that you think you've seen over this time? So that's a really good question, Tej. The biggest change, I think, is um, buy-to-let mortgages. Buy-to-let mortgages, without question. Because when I started, um, there was only a certain number of banks who would lend you money. Um, and the building societies, there's lots of building societies, but they would only, the building societies would only lend on a house. And they wouldn't, at the time, very few would even lend on a converted flat. That's how it's changed. So, and also, of course, a lot less competition. I mean, goodness me, the last 15 years, I think, it's exploded. And there's so many people getting involved in property. There's all these property education courses for them. And all this, someone said to me, Steve, can we forget your surname now? We did the property. I came up with a, a, um, a show called Property Elevator last year that we did on Property TV. And uh, Steve Jacobs was on it. And Steve's a sort of young sort of um, Essex type, you know, bit of a bit of a bit of a character. And he came up to me on the first show because he's one of the angels. We spell like dragons Den. And he came up to me and he went, hello, John. Hello, John. How are you doing, mate? He said, where did you learn your education? Who taught you your property education? I went, you cheeky bastard. I said, life taught me it. In those days, 40 years ago, we didn't have all this education. It's not. It's a good thing, by the way most of it but we didn't have it you know we just you just got on with it and most people and, and when I speak about all this Tej, most people are bright intelligent enough not to need hours and hours and hours of it they need some I accept I, expect, I accept they need some but they don't need hours and hours of it because they're bright they can get on and make their own mistakes you know you like the, the only way you really learn is by getting out there and doing it I can tell the mistakes I made and don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other. But I've got the experience. And that's what's wrong with this property education. Most of the people doing it haven't got bloody experience. How can they tell them, be careful this, be careful that, or be careful that? Mm. And and so, you know, over over this time, have you, you know, do you think when people say, oh, it was easier back in the day than it was now, would you agree? No, I don't. And the reason I don't agree is because it's very hard to get a backer in those days. You know, backers... Nowadays, there's all these people out there with cash who are willing to lend you money, all these property clubs, which are great, by the way, where you can go and you can go and mix with other people and network. You know, it's fantastic. I've been invited to one or two to speak and I couldn't believe it. I didn't know they existed until two years ago. I mean, that is unbelievable. I mean, it's great. They're all sharing ideas, sharing deals, 
fantastic. And we'd never had any of that. I mean, you couldn't lend, borrow more than 50% in the old days. No more than 50%. And actually, you do you want you question now whether that's going to get come back more to, to more, more to that, you know, which is very interesting. But you couldn't borrow more than 50%, and they're all off the just the normal clearing banks. Bridges, bridging companies, they might have been two, three in the country. And you only went to them if you were in serious trouble. So if you say you bought a property and you were selling one and the people you sold to had would, 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 couldn't complete, and you'd only borrow that money for three months maximum, Tej, these days people are looking at bridging companies like banks, and they're not banks. They shouldn't be treated like banks. You'd only borrowing off bridging companies for more than three months. It's too expensive. You know, how do you make any money if you're paying 15, 20% interest like some people are? I'm not saying everyone is, but some people are. It's madness. And it's very easy because they let you have the money quickly and all the rest. I understand that. And I also understand it's not easy if you haven't got a track record. But you've got to work harder at finding better banks than that. Yeah, I think I think I agree and I disagree because I use bridging quite often. Um, and I'm probably, I mean, I don't want to stay on it I mean, ideally three months, happy days. But I think sometimes I have to stay on it six months depending on my exit of choice. But in terms of interest, I think, I'm just getting my calculator out here to annualise it because I normally do it exactly by the month. I would, if I was to annualise it, I would be paying 9.6% interest plus, mm-hmm. I guess there's a, uh, an entry fee but it gets taken off the loan so it you know entry so, and, and entry and an exit fee no, be, ex, but, no exit for me no, okay. um, oh. and no legal fees for me and no valuation okay. fees for me okay well you, listen you're a smart guy okay and you're sensible and i would say if you're paying 10 percent, you know what it's a case of doing a deal not doing a deal you know 10 percent's not out of the way at all bear in mind mind you the interest rate's 0.1 percent <laughs> it's a lot of money but however, yeah. it's, you know, at the end of the day, you can live with that. I argue this. If you can't live with 10% interest, you shouldn't be doing the deal in the first place. That's what I say to people. Same with stamp yeah. duty. How do you yeah, get around I, stamp duty? I say, you don't, you pay You it. can't. You can't <laughs> get around stamp duty. Yeah. All this bullshit about getting around stamp duty. If you want to know how to get rid of stamp duty, get around stamp duty, go to the, the government website, read what it says. There's a number of exemptions. There are a number of exemptions. Read the damn things, understand it, job done. Don't go to some fancy company that say they're going to save you this and that and the other, because at the end of the day, your solicitor gets fined double the amount the stamp should have been if they get it wrong. So with the land registry. So they are no no solicitor worth their salt is going to say, oh yeah, we'll get around this, we'll do it. If they do, I'm concerned. Just as concerned as I am, Tej, if my accountant drive comes up my long drive tomorrow in a Ferrari to see me, I'm worried. Yeah, I want him to come up or her in a second-hand car because I want them to be sensible, cautious, looking after me, not looking after themselves in some flash car. And the same with the lawyer. You don't want them, you know, using you as an example of how you can sort of try and cheat the system. You can't cheat the system. And why would you want to cheat the system? It's only going to come and backfire. It's going to come. It's going to come back on you. So don't do it. Read the government website. It's all on there. That government website, Ted, is fantastic. It's got so much information about all sorts of things on there. And stamp duty, it's got a massive section on it. Look and learn. Yeah. 
And you know, earlier you, you said about bike-to-lets being like shares. A common yes. question I get asked by people who are starting out, whether they've had training or whether they're going to train or they're going to yeah. train themselves, it's always, which strategy do I pick? There's like 101 things I could do. What yes. should I do? How would you answer that? Uh, well, the first first thing, these tra- these strategies drive me nuts, right? All, this, all these terminologies, rent-to-rent, that's subletting. Airbnb, that's like having a guest house. You know, I mean, it's it's all these trendy, trendy words, sorcering or something, you know, finding deals, you know, it goes on and on. So there's nothing new in property. We've seen it, we've done, we're always doing it. We might call it something different, the older the older people, but it's, it's nothing new in property at all. Nothing new. Options and all the rest of it. So uh, what was the question? Um, what, you know, when someone's starting out, they always yeah. say, what, what strategy or what approach yeah, okay. should I yeah. take? Well, the first the first thing is you need a flexible strategy, because if you're just taught, if you're just a one trick pony, you're going to be in problems because that that one trick will work in some other cycle of, pro- of the property cycle, which is a, a 15 year cycle, probably in between recessions, something like that. I think the average is 17 years, but it won't work all the time. So my strategy at the moment is changing because of the market's changing. Um, so, sorry about that. So it's changing. So at the moment I want to be fleet of foot. I want to be in and out the market quite quickly because I don't know, it's a dangerous game to buy when the, when the, when, when the knife is falling. We don't know where it's going to end up. May not fall that much, might not fall at all. I think it will, but Never catch a falling knife. I, I said that on the other show we were on the other day. And, and most people can afford to wait until it bounces off the floor without getting involved. So people's strategy needs to sort, it needs to work around them because obviously if they've got a full-time job or they're, and I get so many people and I'm sure you do too. We say, oh yeah, I'm buying my first deal. I'm giving up my job. Oh my God. You don't be giving up your job until you've got 10, 15, 20 properties and you're dealing with them, you know? There's no need to. There's no need to. What you can do? Sit at the wall and sit looking at the paint all day, drying. You know, it's crazy. So, I think with the buy to let is very. The great thing about the buy to let is super safe. It's super safe. The margins aren't going to be great, but it is super safe. So, um, over 20, 25 years, the property market's gone up. We know it's gone down. It's gone up, but in ultimately, it's gone up. Um, I think it's like shares. The great thing is if you borrow off a bank or build society on a 25 year, say, buy select mortgage, you cannot get it repossessed if you, as long as you pay the, pay the mortgage. Whereas with a bank, the bank, you look at the, any detail from a bank or a bridger it, in the small print, it will say they can take it off you whenever they want. And they do. And anyone who thinks they don't, if the market gets tough and suddenly they're lending you 70% loan to value and they revalue it, and suddenly that 70% is now 80% because the market's gone down, they will come to you for the difference. I promise you. They'll either want a personal guarantee, more personal guarantees if they can get one, or they'll want you to put some cash in. That's what will happen. And, um, you know, that's what you have to appreciate. But with a bicycle mortgage, so that doesn't happen. So it is, is super safe. Hang on one second. I've got a machine going on outside. Hang on. Shush. Sorry, Tej. I'm having my house painted and they've got a big, big machine in to get to the top of it. Sorry. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, 
So buy to let, super safe. The, the safest thing you can do in property, to be honest with you. And, and, you know, there's a lot of people who kind of understand that all well. Yeah. I think they, they sort of, they say they understand it, but they think it's boring, which it can be, you know, if you don't like, you know, I like refurbs. So for me, every house I buy, I freaking love it because it's like another kitchen, another bathroom. This is what oh, drives I me. Can't, I can't stand doing anything to the body. I'd rather, not, I'd rather not do anything to a property. I'd rather buy it one day and sell it the same day. Oh, I love, I love the refurb process, right? So for me... Buy to let's are they're not boring. But there's a lot of people who think they are, and the main thing they say is, you know what you said, it's safe, but the margins aren't there. And they say, right, I want to do HMOs or I want to go into development, into big things, get land, etc. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, I don't know, that progression and how the safety decreases as you go up, maybe? Yeah. Okay. So on the buy to let, I have I have three golden rules, which I I on property tribes, I've got, I've got, I've taken some stick for, shall we say. Now, I have three golden rules of this. If you can't do any of the three, you have to question where you should be doing the deal. Okay. One, you should be able to buy and sell. Having just bought the property, you should be immediately be able to sell it with a profit. Immediately. Secondly, you should be able to buy, refurbish it, and sell it at a profit. And thirdly, you should be able to buy it, refurbish it, let it. And, and refinance most of it. I'm not saying all of it. Refinance and get most of your cash back. Now, if you can't do all three of those things, you shouldn't do it at all. And I put this post on Property Tribes a while ago with Vanessa Warwick, and she said, and we, I got about, I got a lot of, lot of um, stick from it because they're saying, oh, it's all right for you, John. You know what you're doing. I said, well, why is it all right for me and not for you then? I said, these are standards, high standards. You need to portray you need you need to be doing because if you don't and you only want to make a 10 percent profit or something ridiculous guess what happens market goes down 10 percent, or you've got your prices wrong or you you know the bill costs have gone up a bit the the estate agent you misled you slightly you're making nothing in fact you're losing money properly so you need to be making 20 percent net profit minimum otherwise there's no point doing it in the first place that's the first thing and you need to stick to i think my three golden rules some people think they're too tough, but I, they're the rules I stick to myself. I, I like those rules. And when you said you got a stick, I was ready to give you some stick. Then I heard the rules and I was like, actually, <laughs> I would say all of my deals fit into that. Yeah. I may have Correct. one out of 15 or two that wouldn't make an instant problem. Well, we've all got, listen, you know, but we've all got those. And, and, and you show me the property investor, developer, who's not made a mistake and who's not going to make a mistake in the future and I'll show you a liar. It's not an exact science. It's opinion and it's this and it's that and things can go wrong. Who would have thought we'd have this dreadful virus now killing these so many poor people? You wouldn't think so. So, you know, it, anything to do with property, any, if you're buying and selling anything, there's a risk involved in it. Whether you're keeping it for 20, 30 years or not, there is a risk. And for some people, that risk is too much. It's too much of a worry. And when these educators have someone who stands up on stage for them and say, I, I went with so-and-so and this is what I've done and I've created this. Yes, they have done. And they're clever people. They would have done that, I think, I believe, without their help or not, because they're smart guys. They know what they're doing. These girls and guys, they know what they're doing. But to suggest that everyone can do that is wrong totally wrong i couldn't be an accountant i'm hopeless with not hopeless with figures but 
I'm not, you know, I'm not an account. I'm, you know, I'm not this, I'm not, not, I'm not the other, but I can do property. So not everyone can do it. There's some super bright people around who, who would never, never make property developers in a million years. I've got estate agents in my estate agency businesses, bright girls, bright guys, but they never, and they're into the property business, but they're not property developers or investors. They haven't got a clue. They send me something they think is a deal and it's nowhere near a deal. So it, it takes a special person or not special. A, you have to have, you know, some, some, some skill in it. There's not, you don't, everyone could just do it. Everyone thinks it's just easy. It could be done. And you know, that isn't the case. And the more people that know that, the better, you know? Yeah. I think we'll get to education shortly as well, but I mean, everyone who comes on my podcast, a lot of them have had education. And yes. I always say, Without the education, would you have achieved what you try always ask? And they all say, yeah, but it would have taken longer. So I think there is yeah. maybe a compromise. You I think, you know, no, I, I don't disagree with some of that. And I, and some of the education it, it isn't, is good. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, and some is, is just completely fraudulent. Um, and, and I think I, I look at the stuff I do, which is very, very, very little really, but I look at the stuff I do and I think that I'm more telling them the mistakes not to make as I am telling them how to go and you know I'll give them the tools to go out and, and do something we'll talk about that later but the tools to, to do it themselves I think is the key I think yeah and we'll get to that because there's a, I think there's yeah. a differentiator between tools and and sort of just marketing stuff um but totally. <laughs> speaking uh, speaking of you know sort of buy to lets the next step for most people is mm -hmm. HMOs and then developments yeah. What okay. are your thoughts, on, okay. what thoughts okay. on those sort of things? Well, I, every, anyone who follows me a little bit and, and, and uh, listens to some of these podcasts I've done and, and my TV or whatever, know that I'm not a great fan of bedsits. Now, bedsits is what is what we used to call them years ago. And I've done lots of it. I've managed bedsits for other people. I've, I've, I've had houses in bedsits. At the end of the day, HMOs are bedsits. End of. One room. Shared bathroom, maybe en suite these days. I, I agree, there's some very upmarket ones now. And actually, the people who do it well, do it very well. The difficulty is that, it, once again, everyone thinks it's the be and the end all. And that, you know, you need a minimum of six rooms to make any money from what I can see. And whatever the gross is, you've got to take at least 30% off that, at least. And it's a little bit like a friend of mine who's got 15, 16 hotels, something like that. He says, John, I make no money at 55% occupancy. At 70% occupancy, I start making some money. At 90%, I make a lot of money. So, you know, you need to keep them full. In this market now, I think they're quite vulnerable because people might be moving back home, might never pay the rent. First thing, they're more transient than someone who has a self-contained flat or house. They're more transient, they like to be single, they like to be more flexible, they can move very easily. Um, so I think that's a problem. The other problem, and I think one or two banks have got into this problem as well, in my opinion, is that people are buying these houses, and they're only houses, Tejra, at the end of the day, the houses. They're buying, they're making it into six rooms. Suddenly, they've transformed this house, according to them, into some fantastic income-making machine. Okay? Now, it's still a house. And if those tenants aren't there, it's a house. It's nothing more than the house. Yet they're going, they're say buy, buying at 200, make into make it into HMO and saying it's worth 350,000 because of the income. I just don't agree with that. So 
these some of these banks are, are lending the money on these properties, not just on the bricks and mortar, but also the fact they're rented um, and, the, and the income that's coming in. Now, I think that's dangerous. I think you should only value it really personally on the bricks and mortar. And I'm, I'm surprised banks have started doing it differently to that. They never used to. And I think it's dangerous because at the end of the day, to sell that property, you may well need to put it back into a house and it will cost you to put back into a house to, in order to sell it. So the reason I say that is because you're not renting those rooms for five years or 10 years to people or two years or a year. You rent it on a monthly basis. So it's really like a, it's no different really than a bed and breakfast without the breakfast, to be honest with you. And no, nobody would value a bed and breakfast business really any different than just the house it's in. It's an interesting point with the banks and the commercial lending. I, I mean, you'd assume they have their own safety checks to make sure that if they do need to repossess and sell it, it's enough. And maybe Corona will yeah. change the com the world yeah. of commercial valuations. So then if we move on up, as people like to say, yeah. into developments, which is sort of, mm. or, you know, one of uh, you know, the bigger things you can do. Yes. Like a lot of people, and I'm always like, please don't. They're like, right, I haven't got a buy to let. I'm just going to go straight into land. I'm going to get some mud. Yeah and build some bricks. What are your thoughts on the safety of that and the reality of development? Okay, well, certainly, of course, it's a little bit like a, a pyramid, if you like, isn't it? And the development would be the riskier and the bigger base would be the, the, the letting of property out, buying it and letting it out. That's the sensible base to start with, really. And we all started there one way or the other. Most of us did anyway. So as you go up, it gets more dangerous and it gets riskier and the potentially the profits are bigger. I accept that. So again, not everybody will make a developer. If you worry about what you're doing, if you worry about things too much and you're worried about crossing the road and you're worried about this, worried about that, don't do it. If you're a builder building for other people, then it would be the most natural, sensible thing in the world to do because while you're getting your hands dirty, you're saving loads of money. You're, you know, if you can build a house for £100 a foot, where it costs me £130 a foot, say, because I'm employing them to do it, they're doing it themselves, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Surely. And I buy land, I get planning on land, as I said earlier, and I sell it to the builders to build themselves because I can't make the same margins. That My margin is in getting planning permission and selling it. My margin is not in building it because they can build it that much cheaper than I can. So I can make as much money by nearly by just selling the land than I would if I had all the hassle of building it. So, and, and, and the simplest way of explaining this at the moment is on the development to say, on new build, sorry, because that's an easy thing to people to understand. Of course, I've done a lot, awful lot of conversions over the years. And the reason I've done conversions is because the margins are better on the whole, because you're not competing with the builders, because the builders, don't like not knowing what it's something or the, the exact price of a building will cost to build. So with conversions, it's harder to work out what the price what about what the price is to build. So uncertainty means you margin should be better um, and all the rest of it. So I've tended to go on the conversion side of it on the whole and list of buildings. So so I've tended to do more difficult, more more difficult projects that other people don't want to do in order to make the margins. Mm, okay, that makes sense. And, you know, when it comes to, we've kind of spoken about approaches and that, that, that's the deal half of, of property. 
when it comes to funding, I think, you know, most people are familiar with bridging, with mortgages, with all that kind of institutional stuff. Like, what are your tips for people? Because again, this is something that always gets asked. How can we raise private investor finance? You know, what if you were an investor or if you have invested, yeah. what what are you looking for? What should we be showing okay. you and investors? So, okay. So I've had I've had um backers, financial backers all my life nearly. So I met my first proper financial backer, Robert Boyce, when I was 24 years old. And we grew a company very quickly because of his backing and his funding. And he had the cash and he used banks as well. So most most business partnerships, most property partnerships are most. If there's two of you in a partnership, you need to be doing different things, different skill sets. So, for instance, my business partner moment, he wants to retire after 28 years. I don't know what's wrong with him, but he wants to retire. He's had enough of me, apparently after 28 years, he does, he's a accountant. He does all the finance, all that side of things. I don't get involved. I get wheeled into meetings in London, merchant banks and so on. Joe, don't say this, don't say that, John. Walk in, do your bit and walk out. Good advice. And also don't get in the lift and start talking about it because they, they could have a thing in the lift saying, oh, that was great. We got away with that one. So keep your mouth, when you walk in, keep your mouth shut, be polite. When you sit down, when the receptionist starts chatting to you, don't start talking to too much about what you're here for, what you're doing, because you'll go straight upstairs and tell the boss. Just sit quietly, be polite, go in the lift, be quiet, get into the room with the bank. Don't blabble on forever. Just keep quiet, ask, answer the questions that are asked to you, be polite, shake the hand and walk out and don't say until you get in, and don't say anything until you get out in, into the road and then go, we've had a result or whatever you've had. So um, yeah, so backers, <coughs> excuse me. So the biggest thing about backers is you need to give them confidence. And the two ways to give them, three ways to really give them confidence is one, um, under, under, under promise and over, what's the word? Under promise and over, <coughs> excuse me. Over deliver. over deliver. Over deliver, absolutely. That's the very first thing. And when they say to you, oh, I've got a million, or I've got half a million to invest, they're probably showing off. So don't embarrass them. Say, well, I only need a quarter of a million. Okay, don't overface them. Because also, you don't, you don't want to, you know, the last thing you want, they want to do is be cautious and they want to start off, start off on a small deal and then build up. Don't start off trying to borrow a load of money off them. Give them confidence. And the other thing you mustn't do is start saying you need money. Oh, I need £200 a week out of this straight away. No, you, you're not going to get any money if you do that. You've given them confidence. So you say, I don't need any money. I, I won't take any costs, any nothing out until the project is finished and completed. And then we share the profit accordingly. So that's the way to give them confidence. That's the way I've always worked. And that's the way I still work. Doesn't matter how big a project is. I'm just about to start a, a high net worth property fund. We hope to raise between five and 15 million to start with. And my partner on it, who's a he's at a hedge fund and all sorts, very bright man. He's doing again. Guess what? He's doing all the finance, <laughs> and raising the money, um, and wheeling me into meetings and saying, "Come on, this is we can do this deal." Um, and uh, you know, I'm not taking any money out of that bond, if you like, that funding until the projects are completed and sold. So even at that level, I'm still you know, I'm still not taking anything, which is a pain. But it's the right way to do because it, it gives people confidence. Um, 
So, so that's the main, th and these days, there's so many different ways you can find these people. I mean, in the old days, it was so hard because you have no internet, you had no social, social media. You know, it was just the odd introduction, maybe by a solicitor or an accountant, maybe. So these days, especially with people earning no money on interest, none at all, it's a great opportunity to borrow money this way. And if you give them four, five, six percent, that's a hell of a lot more than they're going to get in the bank, as long as, as long as you're not risking their money. You know, so sensible projects, sensible projects they, they can see getting. They also want to know when they're getting out of those deals. They don't want to be in it for two, three years. So I would say you're looking to get your money out within. If you think it's going to be a year and a half, tell them two years. If you think it's a year, tell them a year and a half. Think it's six, nine months. Tell, so always, all the time, don't put yourself under pressure. Because if you tell them you're going to make 100,000 profit out of this deal, and they make only make ninety thousand out of the deal. They'll say, "Oh, well, of course he said hundred, and we only made ninety. If you tell him, "Oh, you should make eighty to eighty-five, and you make ninety, he'll go to his mates. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, he said that, but we made more than that. He'll probably exaggerate it as well. Most property people do. But anyway, so what I'm saying is, 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 is just over underestimate everything you're doing, apart from the costs. Make sure you get your bill costs." correct if you can and if if anything over exaggerate them slightly because they're likely to be to cost more in the end anyway and if not you can say yeah i even came in under budget which is great so and to do all those things you have to do one thing right and what's that Tesh? to achieve all those things you have to do one thing right and what is that well i think there's a few but uh one be... there's only one Tesh. there's only one. Oh, you're putting me on the spot to be a good person what? That's, That's the last thing you need to be in property. <laughs> no. The, the first, the only thing you have to do right is buy right. Because if you buy it right, you can do anything. You can flog it straight away. We've said that. You can flog it straight away. You can do it. You can rent it. It's all in the buying. The selling is in the buying. And you have to be, there's no point people saying to me, oh, well, it's, not, it's on at 90. And I said to the agent, well, I, I, I want to offer 85, but I will go to 90 if I have to. I mean, oh, or something similar. You know, you need it at 75. You need to be, you can be pleasant. People think that just because you're in property and, and I'm saying it's a hard game, which it is, and it's a tough game and it's a ruthless game and, and it's a business. And people think because I sell those things, you have to be a bastard. You don't. You can be pleasant, polite, charming. But you doesn't that will help you get these properties cheaper. You haven't got to be embarrassed about offering less. You know, you might offer on five and buy one. You might offer on 15 and buy one. But that one is the right one. And it, I'd rather buy one property right than I would 10 that aren't right and running around making no money. I am always a busy fool because I'm spending 95% of my time I waste looking at deals but is that five percent i buy you need high standards and even then we still make mistakes sometimes so you need high standards and you need to be strong about it and not convince yourself you should be buying it because you haven't spent the money for four months and with backers that's a problem i've got a number of backers and the problem i have with them oh well john you know we haven't bought any four months what are you doing 
You know, I'm constantly under pressure. And that's why I don't buy enough of enough on my own, because I've got these backers who constantly want to be fed. And if I don't feed them, guess what they're going to do? Find someone else who will. So, or try and do it themselves, which is even more disaster some of them, for some of them, I can assure you. Anyway, then they say, oh, I did this job, but can you help me out? So, you know, it's so important to buy right. And, you know, a lot of people are going to think, well, John, you know, it's okay for you to, yep. to have these backers and to get backers because of your experience. Mm -hmm. When people are starting out, so they haven't got a single property, courses yep. and stuff, which we'll get to shortly, will tell you, yep. you can raise money and look, yes. you, you can, no, nothing, you know, it's not impossible. But do you think that when people are starting out where possible, they should use their money or family and friends, get a track record and then go to the market? Or should they go straight in for like oh. investors? No, I, I, I think most people will want to see some sort of track record, if you can, if you can. Now, I know it's not easy for everyone. And I have people say to me, John, I haven't got any family who can lend me money. What do I do? If you have got a family, if you're going to borrow money from that family, treat them like any other investor, not a favour. Say to mum and dad or brother, sister, uncle, whatever, look, I'll give you 10% interest on your money and I'll give you 50% share of the profit or whatever it might be because then the rest of your family will go well that's okay because we're all going to I mean you're going to inherit the money anyway in the end probably to be quite harsh about it and they're going to inherit it yeah but if they see you're adding to that pot they'll be happy and also they'll be happy to lend it to you again when I borrowed that money off my board three thousand pounds of my mother all those years ago I gave her whatever it was four thousand four and a half thousand whatever it was back she couldn't wait to lend me that money again. She was gagging to lend me the money again because I just she just she made she managed to, to put a new kitchen in a home that my father was too tight to pay, pay. So she said, I don't need your help now. I'm, your son's provided, you know. So that's what you gotta remember. They'll lend you the money again. So if you can do that, that's fine. If you can't do that, and I understand people can't do that then the way may be to get together with someone who's got a little bit of money and buy it together where you put, you bring the deal to the table. I always say this, if the deal is good enough and you have no money, and this is where we get into no money down business, and this is not what I mean by no money, no money down, by the way, you will find a backer. You will find someone to either sell it onto before you paid for it, straight away, same day, or you'll find someone to fund it. Hell, if they ring you up, Tesh, and say, oh, I've got this brilliant deal, but I can't fund it. I can make 40% profit out of the deal. You're hardly going to say no to them, are you? I'm not going to say no to them. I'm going to say, oh, well, I'll give you a profit on it now, straight away. Or you can sit in and have a bit more or something. So if the deal is good enough, again, it comes down to one single thing, the deal. The deal has to be good enough in the first place. Because if it's good enough in the first place, and the, and the market drops 20%, you're still okay. Yeah, I think that's that's good. You know, you, you what they say, the profit is made in the purchase, right? So Not the selling, yeah. I think, you know, to do that takes a lot of patience and a lot of understanding. I mean, for me, yes. for example, I probably, with agents, I've probably viewed 40 to 40 to 50 properties before mm -hmm. one sort of, very little money left in deal lands and it's great and we get and it's happy days but it's taken 40 trips 40 yep. you know however many days the money the fuel yep. the airbnbs the which you know you don't get 
told and you don't get taught because it's like oh you look at social media which is a fantastic tool but you see oh Ted just bought a house he just did this he says but no one talks about no, yeah I but fuck, look at my face like it took me so long to get to this stage now I think a common culprit of perpetuating how easy it can be or should be is education which brings us to a, an interesting topic yes very um, interesting what I'm very passionate about just share your thoughts Okay, so first of all, what you've got to realise is I've come from a very different place to most of the people who do this property education. So I've done 40 years, at the time it was 38 years, and I was listening to all these people, so-called experts on television and on social media and so on. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute, I know more than them. What have they done? And you check them out, and they've actually, some of them have done, some of them have developed things and, and, and been successful. Others have done absolutely nothing. But what they are is they're, what they're better than me at and better than you at, Tej, probably, but I don't know because you're probably a brilliant presenter as well, is they are brilliant presenters. They could be selling anything. So they could be selling diamonds. They could be selling how to buy and sell diamonds, how to buy and sell literally potatoes, anything. And they would convince people in a room that they should be doing it. They are talented people. Make no mistake about that. They are talented people, but they are not property people. And the problem is they're so good at what they do, they make it sound that, like we said earlier, anyone can do it. And very, very bright people are probably, on the whole, the worst types of property developers ever. Most of the people I know who are in property and successful aren't very bright. They're like me. They're not very bright. And actually, in some ways, you know, they might have started because they didn't have the education. If you, you know, if you're super bright, a lot of people who are super bright get a fantastic job and don't need to don't need to take risks that I've taken over my career and so on. So they come into it late. And that they're different people who come into it late. I'm talking about people who come into it and want, you know. So most of the people I know in property aren't the brightest, but what they are is they're decisive. There's no gray areas. They're, it's black or it's white. They're doing it or they're not doing it. They make a decision. They live and die by that decision. Hopefully, nine out of 10, eight, seven, eight, nine out of 10 of those decisions are right and they make a lot of money. Okay, so, but, so that's the world I've come from. Now, so I was transported by, really, I wrote a book, my first book, I've written three now, but my first book, Buying and Selling, um, Developing for Newcomers or whatever. Anyway, I wrote a book and that's then, so suddenly I've been propelled into this world that I didn't really, really didn't know existed. And uh, so well, who's this John Harrell? Never heard of him, never heard of him. Well, I could introduce you, Ted, to a hundred developers more successful better at what I do what I do and more successful than I do the difference is they can't be bothered to do what I've done which is write a book that's the only difference okay so there are thousands or hundreds and well, hundreds certainly probably over thousands, thousands of super successful property developers and I mean successful who've made millions and millions of pounds in this country now then we have the people who want to get into get into property now and the ones that I get attracted to come to speak to me are normally the ones have been on a lot of these courses, have got some money and have started investing in property already. 
and have made mistakes or feel they, they could have done better or feel that they want to step it up and perhaps do some, some bigger deals or some developing deals. So these are the types of people that I get attracted to, to me. The other issue we have, of course, and I believe the industry should be regulated, by the way. I cannot believe it's not regulated. There's all these people get, getting, getting people to, to, to pay for courses on, on credit cards. I mean, whatever you do, do not, please, please do not do that. You know, there's, there's lots of free education out there uh, and there's lots of inexpensive education out there. You do not need to spend thousands and thousands. If you, if you have the money and you want to spend that, that's fine. And I work with one or two people who have got the money and want to spend it. And that's fine if they want to. But, it, but if you haven't, don't think you're going to make it up within six months of, of being on a course because you're not. As we've said, you've looked at 40 or 50 properties. I can show you a way, actually, of saving lots of petrol and saving the environment, Ted. And as a young man, you should be looking to save the environment I don't for your do, children's future. I only do. I, well, I don't really view anymore. So I've, exactly. I've saved the environment Spot fully. On. Exact. Well done. So there's ways of being. There's, it's called smart time, isn't it? I've learned that one. So um, what's so what I'm really saying is this free education. So free. There's lots of free education. So no money down. Now, is there such a thing as no money down? No money down deals. You've seen it everywhere. Make a million in a year. No money down. Right. If it sounds too good to be true, what is it, Tej? Right. So, and what it's doing is exploiting, exploiting people who are either desperate or overambitious or whatever it might be. There's no easy way of getting from A to B on the whole. The only way you, go, you put no money down is what you've talked about earlier, is find a financial backer. But even a financial backer might want you to put 10% in. It's called skin in the game. They might say to you, John, I need you to put some skin in the game here. Otherwise, you can walk away. I'm left with holding the baby, whatever, whatever, whatever. Now, they may not say that. But the only way I can see anyone can do a no money down deal within a period of time of just, and I just mean buying it straight away and sell it and, and refurbishing. I don't mean having an option for five years and renting it and all these other options fancy option ideas and you know why would someone let you have an option on a property for five years if they could sell it now unlikely so they're likely to want the bit so you're actually paying full price for it now or more than full price for it now hoping that in five years time it goes up and then you can then you can buy or whatever it might be so the only no money down deal i can see is a buy to let deal now i've had lots of people say to me John, you're wrong. You're a dinosaur. There's lots of schemes for, for no money down deals. And yes, you know, you can either get, you could get the, the current vendors to leave some cash in the deal. Yeah. But that's not what I call a no money deal. That's just a negotiation. No money deal is when you're saying to someone, in my view, look, here's a property for 100,000. You can buy it today or within a month without putting any money down on it. Well, how the hell can anyone do that? Tej, can I mean, I think there needs to be some money. And I think what these courses argue to play devil's advocate is that mm. it, yeah. it is some money, but it's not your money. So they're saying you are putting no money down. That's 
That's what I have yes. heard is, is, the, is the explanation. Okay, well, that, and, that, and to be fair to them, if they're saying that, in other words, get a backer, a joint venture partner or so on, fine. Yeah, but even if you even if you could even if you could buy a property for hundred thousand and not put any deposit down on that property, you've still got to find the money for stamp duty, probably, unless you're a first-time buyer, which is unlikely. You've still got to find money for solicitors' fees, agents' fees, selling fees, or whatever it might be. I think, you know, as much as they say what I just said about finding a backer, it's definitely not on the marketing. The marketing doesn't say no money down deals, but you need a backer. It just says no money down. So there is an element of whatever the word is that they're, they're doing. Um, you know, buying property is cash intensive. Like you said, those are just Big the time. basic fees. If you're doing planning stuff like you are, there's even more fees yeah. to deal oh. with incompetent people most of the time. <clears throat> no offense to councils. Uh, you know, I think I've realized over buying all these properties, that it's just like, mm. you think at the start, you're like, oh, 25 cent deposit. It ends up being mm. like, 28 29 when you take in all the fees and everything so it is cash intensive and you know buying a property does take out chunks of whatever cash you have absolutely so you have to be prepared for that mentally as well because it's strange yeah i agree one thing i would say to be fair if you have nothing if you have nothing and this is where the rent to rent or subletting as we used to call it comes in if you've got nothing the the why not get stuck in and, and give give it a go, a rent to rent or something like that? And I'm not against anybody who, can, who, who has got the balls to do that. It's risky. It's a risky strategy for two reasons. One, the rent you're getting in may not cover it. And the second thing is, if you've got to refurbish that property during that period or at the end of the period when you hand it back, it needs to be in certain condition. You could spend as much money as you made on profit putting it back into the condition it was in before. So they're the two things that concern me with it. However, if you've got nothing and it's way of starting, and I met, met a lady at an event I spoke at um, a few months ago, and she had 30 rent to rents. She's a very inspiring young woman, and she had cracked it. But she managed to crack it with one landlord to start with, and then he introduced a load of other landlords, and he's, she's done incredibly well. So it can, it can be done, but again, she's a very bright woman. She had a degree in, I can't remember what it was now, but, you know, she's a bright woman. She would have succeeded probably in, in any, anything she wanted to do. Like you, like, similar to you. You know, you're bright, you're intelligent, you'll succeed in anything you want to put your, put your mind to, basically. And um, so I'm, I don't want to knock people who haven't got in because that's wrong. And I, I try and help them and, and inspire them because, you know, you've got to start somewhere. And there's nothing wrong with starting... Um, starting off in any situation um but it's difficult and i i think it's misleading to say it's not difficult but of course as you get older you want to take less risks because you don't want to lose what you have you've got a family and this that so and you know more and you know what can go wrong more so when i was 20 21 18 19 20 21 you know i'd take chances on certain things and most of them would come off um, and by the time I was 25, 26, I made a lot of money, made a lot of money. And interestingly, that was the best time to be in property. Since then, we've had three recessions, which I've survived uh, and done OK with. And coming out of recessions, I've made more money coming out of recessions for the first two or three years after than I have since. So, you know, they are very lucrative times. 
But and, uh, um, and that that kind of I guess leads me nicely onto I guess a concluding point, which it is. What is the date today? It's it's April twenty seventh. We're yeah. four weeks I think into into lockdown. I think. Five nearly. I think five yeah. nearly five. So of course you know people are going to want to know your thoughts, having lived mm-hmm. through all these recessions on the current mm-hmm. madness. So how do you see what's happening now? And tangibly, what do you see as risks and opportunities in the next, in, in 2020, short okay. term? Okay, so this this potential downturn, because it's only potential at the moment, don't forget, it, the, the, how, the circumstances are very, very different to the last three recessions, very different. But my concern is the outcome will be the same. Just because... The situation going into it is different. Doesn't mean the outcome won't be the same. Now, our people argue with me and say, "No, John, you're wrong. Uh, it, you know, it's 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 very it's 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 totally different, and it's going to be very short and sharp, and we're going to be back where we were." Now, I've got thirty-five million pounds worth of property to sell this year on the open market now, so I have a very big interest, hopefully, in it not being a problem at all. So I'm not talking it down. And I think we've got a two-tier market. I think we've got a domestic market where people are going to still want to buy a house, buy a flat, hopefully overlook in the water in Ipswich, straight down the river. Um, and we've got and we've got the dealing, what we what you and I would call the dealing market. Okay, two different markets. So I think the domestic market, I think, will be okay for six, nine months probably, until potentially uh, employment becomes a problem unemployment becomes a problem i believe that any property market is driven by employment which is pretty straight i'm not the brightest i'm not the brightest in the world it's not too difficult to work out is it really so the more people out of work or not just out of work but the more people that see other people out of work even if they're in work edge lose confidence in buying a bigger home most people are most people aren't like people at who want to get into property they're cautious and they worry and they want safety safety first and they will not want to buy if they see the the unemployment figures going up in this country even if they haven't lost their job they don't like people don't like it they feel uncomfortable and it and it and it really does hold the property market back when actually it shouldn't do because if you own a property a house you're living in and your property price goes down say thirty thousand pounds and you're buying another house that's gone down 30 if it's a bigger house it might have gone down 50 60 70 100 000. so pro art you might be better off to train up at that time so it makes no difference to people and if you're a first-time buyer really if it's what you want does it matter if you buy this year or next year if you buy next year you might have saved yourself 5%, might have dropped 5%, 10%, but it's going to go back up again. You're putting your life on hold for a year. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. So domestically, I think we're going to be okay. Deal-wise, very different. People with bridging comp- bridging loans at 10, 12, 15, 18, 20%. Um, value, valuers are going to be tough on, on property that's not finished. The loan, loan to low ratio to what you're paying for for property you were buying at 70 percent loan to value now it's perhaps going to be 60 or 55 all these things are going to be a problem the one thing that isn't a problem Tej, is this unlike last time the banks have got plenty of money at the moment 
Now, they all got stress tested in 2010 to the nth degree. They are in a very, very secure position compared to the rest of the banks in Europe. And in this country, we've got literally thousands of, um, thousands of, of um, financial institutions who want to lend money. So that is good news. The only problem with banks is that they're cowards, total cowards. So are they going to lend me and you 75% going forward, loan to value? Probably not. I mean, I've got a bank at the moment. I've just changed one of my banks, actually a small merchant bank in London, very nice in Mayfair, very polite. You go in, you get a nice cup of coffee. It's very nice to I'll introduce you to them. So I'm paying, pleasure, I'm paying 3% on an overdraft, property overdraft. Now, that's because I've only borrowed 50% against my assets. But if that was a, if I were wanting to borrow 78, 70% against my assets, I couldn't, you couldn't use them, they're, they're too cautious a bank. But you go to another one, you're paying a lot more. Unless again, it's a buy to let. This buy to let is so cheap. The money is so cheap at the moment. People say to me, Oh, it was easier, like we said earlier, easier in your day, John. When my, still my day, hopefully. I'm still bloody out there battling away, doing deals. And I say, no, it's not. I said, at one point, we were paying 15% interest on, on development deals, 15% interest. But um, my mortgage was 15%, my house mortgage was 15% for a little while because the market crashed. So, yeah, you're borrowing money at 1%, 2%. I said, above base, it's ridiculously cheap. It, it's crazy. It's crazy, you know. So, um, what are we talking about? I can't remember now. Anyway, <laughs> coronavirus, the effect on the economy. Corona, yeah. So, Corona. So, so I think it's two tier. I think domestic market, I think, will be fairly much okay. As long as people are sensible, they want to get on the move, which, of course, they've held back over Brexit for long enough. A lot of people, they just fed up and just want to move. Um, but, the, but the dealing market, I mean, I've already had three deals put to me by receivers in the last week where they've already already pulled in pulled in um yeah and pulled in the, the the owners and said we're not supporting you anymore and what happens is in a recession and i'm not saying it is a recession but in a recession what happens Tej, is this the idiots go first right the ones who have overvalued overgeared lied to the banks pre-sold and got a bit of money but not enough haven't got enough money to get the project finished and by the way never ever ever start a project anyone out there listen to this for god's sake never start a project unless you've got all the money to finish it and a contingency sum of five to ten percent on top in case it goes wrong don't start it but some of these chances have on the basis that they think oh it'll be all right you know got inflation we'll revalue it well that's not going to happen anymore so these so so the first lot who go bust are the idiots okay the second lot that go bust are the ones who are slightly undercapitalized so they're buying a bit too much they've they've been a bit too optimistic um and they need say two out of three things to happen to get away with it and guess what they're only gonna have one of one of one out of three things to happen to get away with it they then are in trouble and then eventually eventually what happens is the more secure sensible developers and investors are in trouble and the reason they get into trouble is because the banks want their money back so the banks say to them, which is what happened in 2008, oh, uh, yeah, you owe us yeah, 65% value. We just had it revalued. You, your loads of ratio, load to value ratio 
was 65%, which was fine. But now it's 80% because the property market's dropped. So we are want you to put in 15, another 15% of cash, which most people probably won't have, or bigger valuations. In 2008, I didn't have any value. I didn't have, we had borrowings of probably 30, 40 million. We had no personal guarantees. By the end of that year, I had plenty. Because the first thing they do, they come to you and say, oh, well, you know, you know, you, you, it's all wrong. So, and then if you, if you refuse to put a personal guarantee in because it's not worth your while, or you or put the cash in because you think, well, actually, they think it's 80% geared now, but I think it's 90%, they can have it, you know? And you end up, what happens is the banks then off some people, never happened to us, thank God, but the banks take it off those even better people. But the joke is out of all this tension. Guess who buys? Get goes to auction, or or they put on them. Guess who buy? Guess who buy it back? They're nearly always bought back by the people who had them in the first place. It's unbelievable. Two reasons for that is one, they've got insider knowledge on it, and they know exactly what needs doing and what needs to be done. And two, they believe in that project so much they put the heart and soul in, even if they're paying too much for it. Their ego and their ambition makes them, forces them somehow to find the money off a backer and buy it back. Nearly always happens. Very interesting. And just to go back to what you said right at the beginning, which was the potential downturn, because obviously we're sort yes. of in a bit of a yep. limbo at the moment. Mm -hmm. Don't you think the downturn is inevitable because of the people who will lose their jobs and the effect it's had on the economy or are you still optimistic that it could just sort of blip and carry on first of all no, anyone who says to you they know what's going to happen is a liar they don't no one does not even you know not not, not even the brightest people in the government the government have got some fantastically bright people i've met a few of them you know who, who are working on all this and they are incredibly bright but what they're not is streetwise they're not streetwise. And in this market, you need to be streetwise. You need to be sharp and streetwise. So I think that, I personally think the market will drop. Um, as, uh, like we said, it's linked, to, it's linked to employment at the end of the day, in my view. And it will, I think it will drop. And certainly there'll be opportunities. Now, when you take those opportunities, Tej, that's up to you. But for me, most of the time, and I'm a deal junkie, so I'm always wanting to do deals. Last year, I hardly did a deal for me because the market's too hot. So in a hot market, in a market that's really strong, I'm no better than anyone else. But I'm worse because I want to make bigger margins and I can't make the margin. I don't do anything. It's very frustrating for me. In this sort of market, this is my market. Problems, people getting into difficulty. I've got some capital together. I'm getting some more capital together, hopefully. You know, I'm... I need to, but you need to be fleet of foot. So if I'm looking at a development that won't happen, won't be finished for two years, which could easily happen if you start now, and won't be sold for another year, am I going to risk putting in one or two million or more, three, four, into something like that? No, I'm not. And the reason I'm not going to do that is because I don't know where the bottom of the market might be. Now, I might be the biggest bloody fool of the lot because you might say to me in two years' time, oh, you should have bloody bought that lot, John. Market never moved. But I won't have lost money, but I won't have made any. And actually, that's pretty in this market. You don't need to be clever. You don't need to be super clever or super or super brave because the deals will be there. But you have to be patient. It won't happen overnight. 
the, they, they say that when this, whenever the stock market drops, property drops by half. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but that's what they say, which is interesting. So that'd be about 15% probably. But you don't need to be brave in this market. So I want to be fleet of foot. So I want to be in and out of deals within six months at the moment. So which means I want to buy properties that are finished, nearly finished, part finished. Um, you know, someone in distress needs the money by next week. I could do that for them. That type of thing. And, and auctions are going to be one of the best places to go. In a strong market, 73% of, of property sells auctions, 73%. In a distressed market, that's 50%. Auctions, auctions always, always react quick, quicker than any other part of the market. So as a barometer of the market, look what auctions are doing and the rest of the market will follow six, nine, a year, a year later. So that's a really good barometer. The auction market is a fantastic barometer to what's going to happen the rest of the time. Amazing. Well, John, thank you so much for your insight. I'm sure we could talk forever uh, we on, could. on all of these uh, topics. But if people want to continue the conversation with you or mm -hmm. check out some of your books, how can they get yeah. hold of you and find That's your books? That's very kind of you to give me the plug. Now, I'm not very good at this, but I've got an agent now who has told me I've got to get off my backside and start marketing myself better. So here we go. See what you think of this. <laughs> First of all, they can go to my YouTube. I've got lots of information on YouTube, obviously all free. Please do subscribe. That's the first thing, which I always forget to mention. So I've done tick that. The second thing is you can go to johnhowardpropertyexpert.co.uk. You can buy my books on there. If you buy them off there, I make more money than I do if you buy them on Amazon. So I'd be grateful if you buy them off from my website. Um, uh, so that's that. Um, I've also doing, um, I've got a series of seminars across the UK this year. Of course, they've been stopped now to a point. Um, and um, I'm doing some webinar. I've got to call them webinars now, not seminars apparently because they're online. I've learned that one. Um, and if anyone wants to book on those, they can do so on my website as well. And, and my email's on there. Please contact me if you have a problem and you want me to discuss something with you. I do some mentorship as well, but it, my mentorship is based on success, really. So um, I do an acquisition mentorship where um, you can uh, hire me for the year, if you like, to make sure whatever deals you're going to do, you know, are checked and they're thorough and they're the right deals for you to do. So everything I try to do, I'm trying to add value and, and, and not take away profit from your, from, from people. Yeah. I love it. Well, John, thank you so much for, for coming. It's an on the absolute show. pleasure. And thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.